So if you have a Bible, if you want to take that, Matthew chapter 28. And one of the things that's uh, very apparent is until we understand why, we rarely find out how. Until we really understand why something is really important, we never get around to figuring out how we're actually supposed to go about it. For instance, like, how many of you have had the experience where your doctor said, you know what, you need to start eating better, okay? A little less bluebell, a little more broccoli. Anybody have that? Okay. Excellent. All right. So your doctor's, he's trying to raise your sense of awareness that, listen, there's a lot of blessings by eating healthy. On the other hand, you keep eating the way you are and you're going to have some pretty significant issues and you're not going to like it. And they might even use scare tactics and show you pictures, but they are doing something to raise an awareness for you to figure out, hey, this is important. And once you understand it's important, then you're going to figure out, well, how do I make these changes? Same is true with exercise, right? Doctors say, you know, you got a body and that body is meant to be moving around and you're not doing a whole lot with that. So let me tell you, if you don't make some changes, you're going to have some serious implications. Or maybe you've picked up somewhere along the line, like a real bad habit, like smoking or one that's destroying your heart, mind, soul, and relationships like pornography. Until you understand why it is harmful, you're not going to consider how it has changed. I knew uh, one guy, pretty tough customer, and he had been smoking pretty much all his life. And uh, the doctor said, or, you know, listen, let me just make this real simple for you. If you want to see your grandkids grow up, stop now. If you don't, then you won't. Any other questions? And it was that kind of statement, having this individual think through the implications of this habit that led him to ask the question, well, how do I change? And he actually did. So, but it's true, like, for instance, like studying in school, uh, you realize, why is this important? You know, and your kids are asking you that question, right? Uh, even today, I was like, or this past week, one of my kids is like, how could this possibly help me for the rest of my life, you know? And uh, I had to tell him, well, Math teaches you to think logically, okay? And I had to believe that all the way through college because, you know, like, what does this have relevance for? But once you understand why it's important, then you understand, start to understand how I go about it. Whether you're doing a sport, learning a musical instrument, or you got something you got to learn for your job, once you understand why, then you start figuring out how. Now, for three weeks, we've been talking about going and making disciples of all the nations. And we've been talking about what that looks like, how to go about it. But when you get to that phrase, of all the nations, I think we're convinced in our families, in our church, in our community, we're supposed to be making disciples. But this, of all the nations, why is that? Uh, how do we go about it? And until we understand why we need to go and make disciples of all the nations, you know, we probably will not. So why? Why is it so important? Well, let me just tell you, I want to just give you two reasons. One, it is the command of the king. Making disciples of all the nations, it is the command of the king. It's not a suggestion. It's not an idea. It is literally his divine decree. If you are a Christian, this is what I want you to do. And so our seminal text on this, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, I am truly the Lord of all, the king of the universe. I have the divine right to tell you this is what you're to do. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth 
has been passed to me. His time of humiliation where Christ enters into the world and through the incarnation where he actually, the eternal son of God who's existed from all eternity, enters into humanity. He lives a human life. He's fully God, fully man, takes on all of the breakdowns of human body, and yet without sin. His time of humiliation is over after the resurrection from the dead. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go, he says, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Literally, it could be translated, as you go or going, I want you to, this one command, I want you to make disciples of all the nations. I want you baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But I want to just say something. Before Jesus ever tells us to do anything, he tells us, I want you to focus on me. I want you to realize who I am. You worship me. You set your heart, your mind, your soul upon me. And as you worship me, then you'll go. But if you get the idea like, well, this is our Christian responsibility. We're supposed to go make disciples and we better get after it. If you go with that mindset, you're going, to, you're going to not fulfill what God has called us to. He wants to do his work through you. Notice what he said in verse 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you as a worshiper of me, I want you to engage the peoples of the world. And it's really the Christ disciple making mission is really threefold. And let me just review it for you. First of all, it is establishing people's identity in Christ. That's what baptism symbolizes, is that you fully identify with Jesus Christ. And so Christians who are engaging the world, making disciples, do you know what? They do so because they are seeing their identity, their sense of purpose in Jesus Christ. And that frees you to actually engage in his mission. But if you're trying to squeeze life out of some sort of idol you put in for you, you're trying to find your identity and your money, your power, your position in community or at the university, you will probably not go about the business of the king. But when you find your identity in Christ, then you find yourself moving into his purposes. So the first thing in Christ's disciple-making mission is you establish your identity in Christ and baptism pictures that. But second of all, you help people develop their maturity in Christ. God does not want his people to stay at an infantile level. He wants you to grow and mature. And all last week we, have, uh, we talked about what does maturity look like. It looks like going about and making disciples like Jesus did. But it's just like a tree. A tree gets planted and that little acorn starts to take root. And as those roots develop... It starts sprouting out and you develop like this trunk of a tree and eventually it starts branching out and as a tree matures, it develops thousands and thousands of acorns that are dropped. That is what the Christian life is like. You begin with Christ. You trust him. And you start sinking roots into his word and knowing God through prayer. You have experiences like worship and you grow and you learn from others and as you do, your character starts to emerge, the character of Christ. And as that character develops like that trunk of the tree, you start branching out in your relationships and in your ministry slash career. And literally the fruit of the gospel flows through your life and actually takes root in the lives of other people. That is God's divine design of making disciples. And God intends us that to happen not only at Fellowship Bible Church, not just here in Waco, 
but he wants this process of seeing people brought to maturity in Christ happening throughout the world, and he wants us to be fully engaged in this process. That's why he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations. That is what we're to do. Let me tell you, in the early church, this was the central focus. The whole idea of keeping Christians entertained, and we sure hope they're having a good time and just enjoying their life, that was not the emphasis. That was not the message. Yes, God loves you, but he loves you to send you to be involved in his work. And so like in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus basically reiterates this mission. This is what I want you to do. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says this, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. What I'm asking you to do you can't. It's, it's impossible for you. But me working through you, my spirit in your life, you can do this. And when he comes, he says, this, you shall be my witnesses. Literally, the word is, is martyr. It's, it's where we get our word martyr from, martyrs. You will be my witnesses. You will testify of me. You will even willing to die for me because your identity is in me and you'll be my witnesses and if you want a simple outline of the book of acts acts chapter 1 verse 8 gives it you will be my witnesses both in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria even to the remotest part of the earth and so jerusalem chapters 1 through 7 you see the the apostles making disciples in jerusalem and then when you get to chapter 8 through 11:18, you see them moving to Judea and Samaria. Through persecution, God has the gospel going forth, and his people are seeking to make disciples in the areas of Judea and Samaria up to the north, which was a big deal because they, they hated the Samaritans, but God wanted them to see he is the Savior for the nations. He is an international Messiah. Just like he spoke in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, I am going to bring hope to the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 12, so he says, I'm going to send you out. And so they did. But it didn't stop there. It went from there to the ends of the earth because beginning in chapter 11, verse 19, all the way through the end, you see the Gospel going to Asia Minor, to Greece, and to Rome. This is the ministry. And it is not for a few. Sometimes we get the idea like, well, we got a few Christian missionaries and they're supposed to go make disciples of all the nations. And the rest of us, we're supposed to have a good time and every once in a while throw a few dollars in our direction. Actually, all of us, you, right? You, 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 sitting there, you, every one of us, we're supposed to be involved in this mission. And really, when you look at the New Testament, this is the driving emphasis that the gospel goes to the nation and people grow deep in Christ. Remember the Apostle Paul? Okay, here's a guy who had a radical life change, went from persecutor of Christ and Christians through a remarkable transformation. He actually comes to know Christ, and his life mission is what? To see the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, come to know Christ. Let me tell you his final words on some of his final days. Before he is executed, and he knows he's going to be executed for his faith in Christ, Paul writes 2 Timothy. He writes it to his protege, Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, some of his final words. At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But he says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, and that through me, 
the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles may hear. And I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Do you see his emphasis? It's that all the Gentiles, the peoples of the world would come to know the person of Christ, to know him deeply. And even in his final days, he sees himself involved in this mission. Let me ask you, do you see yourself involved in that same mission? Do you really care about the peoples of the world that they know the goodness, the greatness, and the joy of Christ? This is our mission. If you find yourself like, mm, not so much, well, that probably tells you that you have next steps of maturity that need to take place in your life. Paul says, the Lord is with me. Just like Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. When we step out in faith, when we are willing to engage, God says, I'll make it happen. I'll do my work through you. So why is it that we go and make disciples of all the nations? Let me tell you, first of all, it is the command of the king. Got a question here. How many of you consider Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? I'm just curious. Okay. I think most hands were up. Interesting. The Lord could be translated master. Will you do what he says? Remember Jesus said, Luke 6, 46, Hey, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? This doesn't work. If I'm really Lord, then you've got to do what I say. And I know that you can't, so I'm going to do my work through you, but I, I insist that you go. Why do we go and make disciples of all the nations? It's the command of the king, but let me give you another one. Just let me give you a second reason. It is the joy of the kingdom. I mean, the command is great, but I want to give you a glimpse of eternity. And there is no better book of getting a picture of what eternity will look like than the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, you see what the end will look like. And yes, it is tragic for unbelief because the same Jesus whom they crucified, he is the resurrected Messiah and judge, and he will bring judgment upon all sin and all unbelief. But the same Jesus is drawing people from every nation to himself. And when we talk about missions, we talk about the, the end goal of the mission of making disciples of all the nations. Does anybody know what it is? What's the whole, what's the point? What's this all about? Does anybody know? Well, I'm really glad you're here today because you need to know. Until you know, you probably won't go. The end goal of making disciples of all the nations is this. It is worship. It is that the people of the world worship the Savior, Jesus Christ. And you want to see a picture of it? Look at like Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And I've actually included that in your, your study guide. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, you want to see a glimpse of heaven? Look at this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. They're singing to Jesus because he is the king. He's the only one who has the authority to break these seals of judgment. And, he, and it says, For you were slain. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This Jesus who was slain, why did he die? To redeem a people for his own possession. Not just in America, but in every country of the world. To draw people to himself that the heaven might be filled 
with the praises of people from every nation. If you want to see another picture of this, in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, there's another scene. It is a picture of, of these people that are coming to Christ in the midst of this seven-year period of tribulation. And Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, listen to these words. See if you can't hear the international emphasis of heaven. John says, after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. Imagine this. Imagine millions and millions of people. A great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out. Listen, can't you see it? Just close your eyes. See millions from every country. And they cry out. They're singing this song with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're singing from the depth of their being because you know why? Because their hearts are gripped with Christ and his glory. They know that, in sal- that their salvation is completely accomplished by him. It is God who's done this work. It is God who's gathered them. And when you see the depth of your sin, you start to see the amazing grace and the love of the Savior, and you can't help but sing. And that is why the end goal of missions is worship. In fact, you've seen it in your own life. The more you come to really love Christ, the more you worship him. So you see it also in heaven. They are absolutely overwhelmed and overjoyed. They are saved and secure to share deeply in the love and the life of Christ. That is the destiny of all those who believe. And let me give you just one final picture. Revelation closes with giving you a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. And just listen to these words. Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John writes, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need for the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now listen to this. And the nations, the nations, all the people of the earth, the nations, those who believe, will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. The kings of the earth, those who were esteemed to have leadership in this life, who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they enter in with great joy because you know why? Because God has accomplished his will in their life and they had influence in the lives of many others. Heaven is going to be international. It is going to be glorious. People are going to sing and praise God for eternity because their hearts will be always thrilled with the majestic presence of Christ, what he has accomplished in the past, and how he reveals his amazing love throughout all eternity. In fact, it goes on to say, In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, because there's no threat. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God has a register of those whom he has chosen. He has called it the Lamb's book of life. And every single person who's been redeemed by Christ, they are going to have the eternal entrance and joy of heaven. So let me just tell you something, friend. People 
cannot have life unless they have Christ. That is true for you. That is true for people in the remotest parts of the earth. And the essential question of life is this. Will we come to Christ and will those who have Christ go to the world? That is the question. Oftentimes in America, we emphasize us placing our faith in Christ, and rightfully so, because apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. There is absolutely no hope apart from Christ. But all of us who are in Christ, we are called to engage people to make disciples of Christ, not only in our community and in our church, but the world. This is the mission of the Master. Now, let me just tell you something sobering, and you saw that in that video. About a third, a third of the world professes to be Christian, okay? I have got my suspicions that there's a lot less than a third of the people that are really Christians, but God knows those who are his. That's not actually up for me to try to sort out. God knows. That means, though, friends, that two-thirds of the world are openly identify as non-Christians. They identify likely with some of their faith, and there's a few strains of people that say they're atheists or agnostics, mostly here in America and a few in Europe. But that tells you, friends, that there's 4.5 billion people who do not know Christ and apart from trusting him will face an eternity away from him. And 2.25 billion of those people have little to no access to the gospel. They are literally in complete spiritual darkness. And you're like, 2.5 billion? It's kind of like our national debt, you know, 16 trillion. I mean, I, I just can't comprehend such numbers, right? I'm a simple person and I don't understand such numbers like 4.5 billion. Uh, you know, it's easy to get lost in a statistic. There's a guy by the name of Joseph Stalin. You ever heard of him? Listen to this quote. The death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is just a statistic. And under Stalin, millions died. You know, there's a chilling statement coming from this wicked maniac. And it has some truth to it. You see, when one person dies, we can relate to that person. That person had a mom. That, that person has feelings like me. We can, we can see, we can identify with that one person. We talk about a million people, that's a statistic. We can't seem to identify. But you see one person, though. You see a reflection of ourselves. And you see people that they're sad and hurt and lonely. They're just like me. Let me tell you, the 4.5 billion people in our world today, they are just like you and me. They have hungry, they have feelings, they have aspirations, they have children. They want a better life. They're afraid. They feel threatened. And apart from knowing Christ, they perish eternally. And Jesus says, I want you to go. So why do we go? Well, it is the command of the king. And second of all, it is the joy of the kingdom. In a short time, friends, we're going to be in the presence of Christ himself. Our opportunity Our time on this earth to do the work of the master will have passed. And we will be surrounded by the presence of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping Christ as we are. And it says there are no tears in heaven because Jesus himself must wipe them away. But perhaps those tears may flow because we simply didn't take Christ seriously 
while we were here. We were far more interested in our happiness, our check balance, checkbook balance, our retirement fund, than we were the mission of the master. Why do we go? It is the command of the king. It is the joy of heaven. But we, until we understand why, will not get about to figuring out how. How do we go about this? How do we go and make disciples of all the nations? Perhaps Jesus has literally gripped your heart and you're saying, I want to be involved in the mission of the master. How do you go about it? Let me tell it real simply. You go in the confidence of Christ. Confident in Christ. Jesus said, Matthew 28, look at verse 20. I am with you always. It's, it's reminiscent of how the Gospel of Matthew begins, where Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of the Gospel, he says, I'm with you. I'm going to do it. I know you're afraid. I know you're incapable, and you're inadequate. But your inadequacy is not the issue. I'm going to do my work through you. You go. We go because he's with us always. We're confident in Christ. And second of all, how do we go about this? We are compelled by his love. You see, the more we see the loveliness of Jesus, that he literally takes it all and paid the penalty, not only for our sin, but the sins of all those who will believe, that he loves us with an amazing love. He's blessed us. He's gracious to us. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He strengthens us. The more we come to know the love of Christ, the more we're compelled to be involved in his mission. Let me simply tell you this. People are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission. Making disciples of the nations is not just for a few. It is for all those who call Jesus the Christ and their Lord. And because he loves us, we follow him. And you and I who have placed our faith in Christ, guess what? We have entered into this process of maturing in our relationship with Christ. But it is a process. It is a process in my life. I feel like I'm really growing this year spiritually. I believe that the Gospel of Matthew is completely reshaping my perspective on church mission, community mission, world mission. And it's been an ongoing process. I think most of you know I came to Christ uh, when I was at college at the University of Oregon. And after I came to Christ, I, I realized, like, wow, God is doing something really amazing here at the University of Oregon. And I also became quite uh, interested in seeing my family come to know Christ. And I tried to engage them with the Gospel. But there was a church that actually gave me a scholarship to go to an event called Urbana in Urbana, Illinois, put on by InterVarsity. And I went there, and there were thousands of Christians gathered from all over the country, most of them college students, young like myself. And for the first time, I saw that God was doing something around the world. I met people like Billy Graham and George Werner and Floyd McClung as I watched them on stage, and they started talking about bringing the gospel to the nation, seeing disciples made around the people of the world. And I was like, whoa. This is far greater than just one little place, a little dot on a map. And so you start to grow. And let me just tell you what growth looks like. Consider where you're at today and ask the Lord, what is your next step? First is praying. Uh, your next step on the journey is going to involve prayer. When you, when you start praying, like, for instance, for uh, like a missionary or some lost person that you know or a lost people group in the world, it starts off with you just you pray once and you give a brief prayer. But then as you mature, you actually start praying more than once. And a mature person, actually, there's a regular pattern of prayer. You're somewhere along the line. Jesus wants to take you to the next step. 
There's a second one if you want the next step for you. And that would be giving. The first step of maturing and giving is that you actually start to give. And so you give. Maybe you give a small token amount of like, well, I think I could part with this five. I've got 350 in here. There we go. And you do that. Okay, you start. But then you move from, from starting to give to you actually then start continue to give like on a consistent basis. You give to the church as it fulfills its mission, and you give to missionaries as they are an extension of the church of making disciples of all the nations. And you become consistent. You become monthly on it, and you're maturing. But then as you continue to grow, you see your life as a conduit of blessing. And as God gives you, you give out. And it, it's become significant. It's not like you hear about like 10%, and that's just a benchmark because the New Testament doesn't actually give a percentage. That's a nice goal, but you can far exceed it because the New Testament emphasizes grace giving as you give to the kingdom of God to see it advance, and you do so as an act of worship. And then there's another next step you might want to consider. We're called to make disciples of the nation, all the nations. That means you. So you start by going. Well, first you might just go across the street. But then you might go to the other side of Waco. You go across the city. But then you might consider maybe God could use me on a short-term mission. Just like you see us sending people to India. And we're going to go again in 2013. A trip is already starting to be planned. You're like, well, I'm going to trust God to go and be involved and to invest. And, and there are some that God actually calls for long-term assignments. But it's a willingness to go and saying, God, whatever you have for me, whether you want me to stay here and just continue to give or you want me to actually go, whether it's short term, God, if you're calling me long term, make that super evident to me. But Lord, whatever you want, I want to go. And finally, a next step, a point of application. How do we go about this? Here's one. You probably haven't thought about it. Inviting. Why don't you invite the world into your home? I know we live in Waco, Texas, but Waco is changing. The peoples of the world are starting to come primarily because of Baylor University. We have the opportunity of inviting internationals who do not know Christ into our home. We have people that have come from Mexico and other parts of the world that are actually coming to Waco. We can invite them and build a relationship with them because they need Christ. And frankly, the world is at our doorstep if we're willing to open the door and say, come in and meet the loveliness of Christ. And that is what the Gospel of Matthew does. It ends with this. We who know Christ are to go with the mission of Christ, for people are God's ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary mission. There's a book called The God Who Hung on the Cross, and there is a woman by the name of Ellen Vaughn who wrote this book, and she tells in this book a gripping story of how the Gospel came to a small Cambodian village. In September 1999, there was a pastor, his, uh, his, this is not his real name, but Tu Seng, went and he went to these northern villages of Cambodia to share the good news of Jesus. Now, most of the people in Cambodia where he's going, they were involved in Buddhism or spiritism or worshiping their ancestors or some sort of demonic spirit. And that was his experience as he'd go from village to village. Rejection, rejection, no one's really interested in that, except one small village in the north. In this one particular village... He started sharing the gospel and about this Jesus, lived the perfect life. He comes and he dies on a cross to pay the penalty for sins, and he rises from the grave, and, and he has an amazing reception. Everybody wants to hear about this Jesus. He's like, what's, 
what's going on? And he said, hey, why are you guys so receptive? I mean, most missionaries are not, do not experience you just walk in, the gospel, walk in with the gospel and people are like, please tell us more. He says, hey, what's going on? And there was an old woman that came and she hobbles up to him and she grabs this pastor's hands. She bows low and she said, we've been waiting for you for 20 years. And then she went on to tell the story. In the 1970s, I think some of you are familiar with this, there was the Khmer Rouge. This was the brutal communist regime that literally flooded into Cambodia and took it over and they massacred people. Up to about 2 million Cambodians died under these communist hands in very vicious ways. If you've ever seen the pictures, they horrify you. They make you sick to see what these communists did to these Cambodians. In this particular village where this pastor was at, the Khmer Rouge moved in. They rounded up all the people and they gave them shovels and forced them to start digging their own graves. They made them face their graves. And the people started crying out and screaming. Some were crying out and and had relatives that had died and some calling out to their demons and, and others were like just trying to yell that Buddha might help them. But there was this one woman who, who remembered her mother told her about the God who died on a cross. And certainly this God would know about suffering. So she starts crying out to the God who dies on the cross. And as she's wailing and calling out, others are listening. And something moved among the people and they all started crying out to this God who, cried, who died on the cross. After a while, it just dissipated into kind of a slow wailing. And things were suddenly quiet and super, super silent. They, they gathered up enough courage to turn around to face their captors and to discover that all these communist soldiers were gone, every single one of them. And so for 20 years, she said, we've been waiting waiting for someone to can share the rest of the story of the God who died on the cross. And friends, the word of the cross transforms the way that we live. The church, we are to go and to make disciples of all the nations. The nations are waiting, the king is commanding, and it is the joy of heaven. Now, I want to tell you this morning, we have a, a unique privilege. This morning, we're having a special guest by the name of Kirk Franklin. Kirk Franklin grew up as a missionary kid. He was born and raised in Papua New Guinea. For the first 16 years of his life, he lived in a remote area with a Kiwa people group. He's married to his wife, Christine. They have three kids. Now, Kirk has actually been at our church before, and that is because he's Carol Harden's brother. But let me tell you a little bit about this man. In 2008, he became the CEO and president for Wycliffe International, which is now called Wycliffe Global Alliance. It is, they have over 7,500 missionaries in 65 nations. Their home base is in Melbourne, Australia. He has his office in Singapore. He holds a dual citizenship in the United States and Australia, where he considers home. And having been raised as a kid in a third world culture, He's a student of theology and missiology, and now he's head of one of the mission, largest mission organizations of the world. He brings a unique perspective to the current status of the world mission. And so, Kirk, it is a real privilege to have you with us this morning to give us an inside look of missions in the world. Welcome. Thank you. 
Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. And greetings from the other side of the curtain there. That's the uh, U.S. and Europe, if you're wondering what that is. And in fact, if you think about 100 years ago, where the majority of Christians were living, uh, eight out of every ten Christians were found on that side of the curtain. And only two out of every Christians were found on this side. But 100 years later, now only 3.5, if we could divide people in half, uh, live on that side of the curtain who are Christians, total number of Christians, and 6.5 on this side. So in 100 years, we've seen an astonishing growth of the church. In fact, on this side of the auditorium, this side of the curtain, the church has grown uh, 23 times. The original, if you take the... The, the percentages. You've had so many facts and figures this morning, I'm not going to give you too many more. And this side has only grown 1.85% total number of Christians. It reminds us that the spread of the gospel never conquers and holds a territory. You can't look at a map and say, well, that's a Christian nation, because it, it never is. It may have a majority of Christians at one point in time, But 100 years later, that's not the case at all. If you take Europe, for example, you think of Europe and Germany, Switzerland, post-Reformation. These were the hubs of Christianity for a long time. And today, uh, there's very few churches left that are actually doing very well. I think it's because Christianity has at its heart vulnerability. And God chooses to use the fragility of us human beings in all of our weaknesses. But that should greatly encourage us that he can actually use any of us. Now, we've already been mentioned, it's already been mentioned to us that the percentage of the world's population that are Christians, roughly a third. That means two thirds do not have a gospel witness. And there's a number of reasons for that. Certainly, there's no churches or few churches amongst them. Or they may only have a very small percentage of Christian resources made available to them. Or they may not even want a gospel witness. We shouldn't assume they do. Uh, If you're in bondage to another religion uh, and you don't know what what the gospel is, you're not going to be reaching out for it necessarily. And there are many parts of the world that are like that. But a big factor in the growth of the church, if we plot it on a map the best we can and look at these shifts, one of the outstanding reasons has been because the Bible has been made available to the people of the earth. Not all languages, 6,900 languages are spoken in the world. Not all of these languages need the scriptures still. Maybe 2,000 still do. But that means 4,000 languages at least have some scripture available in them. And it means today that more people are worshiping the Lord in their own language with their own scriptures than ever before in the history of the world. And that's worth celebrating as well. It's a remarkable achievement that God has allowed. Translating the Bible has enabled the Christian faith to gain access to the world's humanity. And as uh, you could say, without Bible translation, there will be no church because the church is not sustainable without the scriptures available. You came each Sunday and you heard your pastor just giving his thoughts, his good thoughts, but not anchored in scripture. It wouldn't be very long that you would see a shift away Uh, to to a cult or or some other way of thinking. But the Scripture keeps anchoring us in God's ways, and that's why it's so important. The Bible 
is read differently in, in this part of the world than this part of the world if you were to generalize. In this part of the world, the part of the world that is still needing a strong gospel witness, but where already we're seeing the growth of the church, we see the Bible speaking to people in everyday situations to deal with poverty and debt, famine and urban crisis, racial and gender oppression, and state brutality and persecution. <clears throat> but on the other hand, Christians in this part of the world face a challenge of secularism, of consumerism, postmodernity, and we could say addressing faith in a period of doubt is one of the greatest challenges the church faces on that side. Now, recently in June, uh, my wife, uh, Christine, who is here with me, and, and I had the privilege of going to Finland. Now, Finland is not actually known for very much, Nokia phones and a few other things. And of course, if Nokia is not doing so well these days. But something you may not be aware of is that Finnish Christian missionaries have been going out for quite a while, 100 years. But in, in Wycliffe's case, 40 years. And we are there celebrating 40 years of Wycliffe in Finland. But the astonishing thing was that they have been part of seeing 30 language groups have the scriptures for the first time in that 40-year period. If you know anything about Bible translation, that's remarkable because it takes a decade just to get in to know the language, live amongst the people, and do a translation. Some of the Finnish couples had actually done three or four translations in different languages. This is astonishing because the country only has five million people. This is astonishing because it's Europe, secular Europe, Europe that we often think has turned its back on God. The point being that we can never quite figure out where God is going to work, where God is going to move. And there's something about these Finnish people who are willing to go to the ends of the earth. In fact, many of them have gone to Papua New Guinea. If you look on a map, Finland and Papua New Guinea, there are, two no, there are no two points farther apart on the map than those two places. So again, God does not look at where people are going to go and constrict them and say, no, no, that's too far for you to go. I can't possibly send you there. God in his, his grace and mercy sends people everywhere. Another amazing thing about Finland was shortly after we were taken to a festival. And it was a festival over the midsummer weekend. If you know Finland, it's in the Arctic Circle, so it stays bright, light, the whole time in summer. You get about one hour of sort of dusk at that time of year. And in the midsummer, which is the longest weekend of the year, nobody wants to be inside. It's blue skies, sunshine, everybody wants to be outside. 30,000 Christians had gathered for a midsummer festival with their caravans in these tents just to be together and to listen to sermons and praise the Lord together. And one morning, on a Friday morning, about 11 o'clock in the morning, blue sky sunshine, about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 9,000 people got in this tent to, for two hours to celebrate the Bible and the importance of the Bible. This is Finland. This is 2012. In other words, God is always doing the unexpected. And just when we think Europe, there's no future in Europe, look, there's another generation. There's people who continue who want to follow Christ. During this past decade, the number of Christian missionaries has, uh, from the non-Western world that now outnumbers the Western world. It's an incredible shift. And no country has seen more rapid growth in the number of missionaries it sent out than Korea, South Korea. 
In fact, it sends out more missionaries than the U.K., and currently about 21,000. Not only that, there's countries like Brazil that have a very fast and large-growing missionary movement. Singapore has more missionaries per capita than any other nation on earth, and it's a very small country. In August, I was in Korea, and I was meeting with 150 Koreans who work primarily in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia, the toughest spots on the planet. That's where you will find Koreans. And during the course of the conference, this lady came up to me with her two little kids, and she was thanking me for a prayer for her husband. And I had to remember what had happened. And two years ago, her husband had been seized by the police in the country of Morocco where they were working and put in jail for no reason. And it took more than a month for him to be released. There was a lot of negotiation going on. And the whole thing had to do with the fact that he was Korean and the Moroccan government wasn't happy with Korea at the time, so this was a way of them showing them that. And an innocent man was grabbed from his ministry and family and put in jail for no reason. Anyhow, he was released, and they had to return to Korea. They couldn't stay in that country uh, for obvious reasons because they, they were obviously marked in some way. So I said to her, well, how are you doing? This little, their young family were doing fine, and we're going back. We can't go live there, but we're going to go to Europe, and my husband will keep going in as a tourist so we can continue our ministry in Morocco. The thing we need to be reminded of with, with the Korean missionary movement is that as young people, as kids, they were raised to believe and, and were taught that when you become a missionary, you go to the hottest spots, uh, the most difficult places, the places no one else is going to. That's why one of the main reasons we find Koreans in some of the toughest spots on earth. Well, let me close and say that, and, and you don't need too much of a reminder of this, but the world is incredibly messy. And it's getting messier as we go. And it would be easy at this point in time, with all the statistics you've just heard, to say as Americans, are you really needed in the world today? You know, you've done your thing. Uh, you can sit back now. And, and the rest of the world will take care of it. The Koreans have this covered. That's not the message of this morning. All that you've heard with this growth from these other missionary movements is simply to encourage you that God is at work in many, many countries all at the same time. But he's not saying to you and he's not saying to the U.S. church, thank you, uh, you've done your bit, you can now relax. Not at all. In fact, you're needed more than ever. You're needed to be part of the whole church. You need to continue to believe and obey and share the whole gospel. And you need to go to the whole world and make disciples of all nations. In doing so, though, here's something that maybe we need to think more carefully about. We need to be known for our bold humility or our humble boldness. We need to be people who are modest, but we're excited by what God is doing. And we must be compelled by the urgency to be obedient as we participate in God's mission. And above all, through prayer, we seek to discover the movement of the Holy Spirit and we join with him because discernment through prayer is the first act of mission.